Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 140. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. From high atop the stately Lee's Comics mansion, we bring you the Lee's Comics Radio Hour with tonight's special guests, Spider-Man, Superman, Batman, Cerebus the Aardvark, and yours truly, Wally Fields. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store, based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale. For half off, choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar, scroll down to Sellers, and enter Lee's Comics, Inc., period. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. Dennis the Menace, originally a comic trick panel introduced in 1951, expanded into a comic book series, an American television series starring Jay North, an animated television series, and subsequent television series, books, and feature films. There's even a chapter on the British version of Dennis the Menace and Dennis' longtime association with Derek Green and his playground. Pocket Full of Dennis the Menace by Mark Arnold and Fun I Did Productions explores the entire history of Dennis the Menace and is available now on Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. Hey Michael, it says here we've written another book about the monkeys. Wasn't the first one enough? Not at all, Mark! Our original book, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Songs One by One, was very successful, but only covered half the story. Which half? The group half. Our new book, Headquartered, A Timeline of the Monkey's Solo Years, covers the solo half. Who knew the monkeys record so many solo albums? Not only that, but this book covers all of their solo projects, including stage shows, horse racing, running record labels, directing and starring in TV shows and movies, voice acting, and jail. Jail? Did the monkeys go to jail? Ah, you have to read the book to find out. You've sold me. Have you sold them? Who, who, who's them? Those people out there listening to this. Well, listen to this. This book has discographies, photos, and other information about the prefab for Mickey, Davey, Peter, and Mike, the solo monkeys, plus another nifty cover by Scott Shaw. Wow, he did our last cover, and this one's equally good. Where can you get this masterpiece? Announcer. Announcer? That's me. Get Headquartered, a timeline of the monkey solo years, written by Michael A. Ventrilla and Mark Arnold. Those two guys. It's available in hardback, paperback, or ebook from BearManorMedia.com or from Amazon. Get your copies today. Cool. I'm going to get one today. You can order the TTV scrapbook today at Bear Manor Media or Barnes & Noble. Currently, it is available in hardcover and paperback, and will be an ebook soon.
Also, it will be available on Amazon and other online platforms soon. I finished my Popeye article and am now working on a Dino Writers article for Back Issue Magazine and a new Warren Kremer article for Alter Ego. And, of course, I'm still working on my Mad and Turtles books. On today's show, we have a writer who has been published in Rolling Stone, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. His book, Reading Comics, How Graphic Novels Work and What They Mean, won an Eisner Award. His current book is called All of the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told. Here he is, Douglas Wolk. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with another Fun Ideas podcast, and on today's show, I have author Douglas Wolk. How are you, sir? Really good. Glad to be here. All right. I thank you very much. Um, part of the reason I had you on the show is to talk about your career, the new book you have out, which I got a version that says signed by the author, nice. um, is called All the Marvels, and so we'll be talking quite a bit about this book and just some other things that you've uh, written in your career and stuff like that. And um, so I usually kind of start things off by just asking, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in becoming a writer. Who I am and how I came to be. Uh, I'm Douglas Wolk. I live in Portland, Oregon. I write about comics and music and pop culture, and I've been doing that for kind of a long time. I fell into writing completely accidentally. Uh, I had gone to school to be a chemical engineer, and then I switched to English partway through, and then I got out of school and moved to New York and started temping because I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, and accidentally fell in with some people who worked at music magazines, and uh, that ended, that turned into gigs working as a copy editor at music magazines, and these were music magazines that didn't have much of a budget. So, you know, the deadline would come around and there would be a magazine that would have to be written. And so I would write it hmm. and uh, under a whole bunch of different pseudonyms, usually including names of both people who had signed the Declaration of Independence and members of the Legion of Superheroes. <laughs> so if you're looking at an old music magazine, you see like a, a review credited to Ayla Rands. That's probably me. Uh, that led to doing freelance writing in addition to stuff I was writing for the magazine. That led to realizing that I should just quit my day job and be a freelance writer full-time, which happened kind of a while ago. Happened uh, back in 1997, and I've been freelance pretty much all the time ever since. Uh, spent a couple of years in quasi-grad school programs, but not really grad school programs. There's the National Arts Journalism Program, which I did at Columbia University, which is for, quote, mid-career journalists, mid-career arts journalists. And I did a similar thing at uh, USC Annenberg a little bit later. But mostly I've just been writing. And I've written a lot about music. And I started writing more and more about comics. I wrote a book called Reading Comics back in 2007 that won an Eisner and Harvey Award. Uh, about seven years ago, I got to actually write a comics miniseries. I wrote a Judge Dredd miniseries, which was kind of the most fun thing I've ever gotten to do. And then about six years ago, I my son started getting into reading old Marvel comics with me. And I started thinking, what would it actually be like to read all of them? What would that giant half-million-page story look like as a story? And I figured it would about, take me about two and a half years to read all of them and write the book. And six years later, here we are. <laughs> well, you've answered some of my questions, but I will say, ask that again. So you thought it was going to take two and a half years, but it, it took six years then? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, uh, it to, did. To read um, them or to write about them? The <laughs> writing was the hard part. The reading <laughs> took a while, but it was fun. Like that was, I was just treating it as a job and I would just sit down every morning and blast through as many comics as I could uh, until my eyes started to hurt. And I, I did not read in any order. I grazed. Ooh. I read whatever I felt like reading on any given day. I would read Iron Man one day and then I was like, oh, today let's read a bunch of comics drawn by Gene Colan. Today let's read a bunch of romance comics. Today let's read a bunch of comics that have you know, AIM in them. Um, and then I realized, so I had a spreadsheet 
okay. with everything. It was uh, makesamazingworld.com. It's a fantastic oh, yeah. spreadsheet. That's a um, website, yeah. So I was using that, and I was crossing things off, and at a certain point I realized that there were areas of that spreadsheet that I was avoiding, which is how I ended up locking myself into an apartment for 11 days with a case of protein drinks and 30 years worth of Punisher comics. Hmm. Now, I haven't read every single page of your book, but I did uh, read it closely enough to know that, and it, this is good, a good reason why I have the book, because my original question is, do you start with Fantastic Four, number one? You don't. And uh, you'd start with Linda Carter, uh, student nurse. Yes. Now, why, how did you arrive at that? Was that at the beginning or is that after reading things, uh, you know, going through everything and night nurse and everything like that? You just said, this is a better starting point than Fantastic Four, number one. So the point where I kind of landed at the idea of like, oh, actually, let's make Linda Carter the beginning of the Marvel Universe. Yeah. There are a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that a few years ago, I did, I gave a talk at my favorite local comic store, Books with Pictures in Portland, Oregon. Love that place. <laughs> and I was doing a history of the Marvel Universe in 45 minutes. The complete history of Marvel, yeah. Um, and I decided, okay, to trim it down, let's figure that, let's arbitrarily say that the Marvel comic story is, it has five protagonists. Let's pick the five protagonists. And one of them was Dr. Doom, and you know, one of them was Peter Parker, and one of them was Linda Carter. Hmm. Because I loved the idea that it was really her story. This non-powered, ordinary person who just wants to make people better. Mm -hmm. And who is present at the beginning of the story, and then disappears for a decade, and then is present again and then disappears for 30 years, and then comes back and stays. Hmm. And maybe, like, what if you read it as her story? What if this is her world? Mm -hmm. And then I discovered all sorts of things that sort of interestingly back that up, mm -hmm. like the fact that the MC logo, which may or may not have stood for Marvel Comics, nobody knows, started <laughs> appearing on comics about three months before Fantastic Four, mm -hmm. and the first comic on whose first issue it appeared not the first comic it appeared, but the first one that it appeared on the first issue was Linda Carter. Hmm. Other thing was that the earliest crossover in that period happens two months after Fantastic Four, number one, and not in superhero comics. Hmm. It happens in Linda Carter, Student Nurse, and Patsy Walker, and Patsy and Heidi, and Millie the Model, and you know, Kathy the Teenage Tornado. Like, <laughs> they're, like It doesn't happen in a big way, but the characters show up in each other's comics and there's consequences from one series and another series. And it's the same thing Marvel was doing much later at the beginning in these comics about hmm. teenage girls and young professional women, which used to be a really substantial part of that company's line. Yeah. It was that and monster comics and some war comics and some romance comics and some horror comics and you know, a couple Westerns and that <laughs> but like there was this whole there was this whole group of characters who they never completely went away, but they got absorbed by the story. Mm -hmm. I thought that was cool. <laughs> now, um in selecting besides that, in selecting all the twenty seven thousand things, did you have to read through things and then for a while and then say, mm, nah, not this title? Or were there just titles you just said? Nope, I'm not going to do this at all. I mean, a good example would be any children's titles, uh, the Star Comics line or something like that. I'm sure you didn't include any of those. And things, no, I mean, because they're not really in the continuity, except maybe Peter Porker or something th like there, that. There yeah. is an issue of Top Dog that was originally going to be an issue of Spectacular Spider-Man. Oh, that's right. There is a Spider-Man yeah. cameo uh, in one of them. Yeah, so, but, yes. like, but like that was listed in the Spider-Man titles as like, this is the you know, November issue. It's going to be like, guest star Top Dog, and it's going to be real weird. Mm -hmm. And then that ended up just running in Top Dog. Uh, basically, if something was an edge case, I read it. Uh, the, the rules that I made for myself about like, okay, it has to be present day, has to be in the Marvel Universe proper. Mm -hmm. Those were mostly rules to get myself out of having to read 500 Conan comics. <laughs> 
Um, and uh, let me skip some westerns, but you know, I read all the romance comics anyway. I read all the monster comics anyway. Mm. I read all the new universe because why not? I read all the ultimate universe because why not? Mm. Um, there was there's some there's some other stuff that is not in universe that I didn't really. It's not really part of the project, so I didn't worry about it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd read all of Dread Star years ago, but Dread Star is not not part of the story. So. Okay, so it has to kind of be part of what is considered the story. Exactly. Like, the, so, the rule was, if the version of Spider-Man who appears in Amazing Spider-Man mm-hmm. could appear in it without time travel and without hopping between universes, whether mm-hmm. or not he does, I had to read it. Okay. Because, like, certain things, you know, are kind of that little grayish area, you know, like Howard the Duck or something. I mean, oh, that ended up... How the Duck is 100% in the Marvel Universe. Right. Yeah. And so, but that character appeared in these one-pagers in, like, Crazy Magazine. Did you go yeah. venture that far into reading uh-huh. stuff like that? Oh, okay. Yeah, totally. All right. Um, then how did you get access to all this? Did you have this big collection of these comics? from, the, Or did you have friends that were, like, helping you out along the way, saying, you know, I got this selection of books? I had a real big collection, and Marvel Unlimited was really 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 useful like really useful they've got 20,000 plus comics that's great um i've been collecting stuff for a while and when i had trouble finding things i had i always had friends who were like let me find it for you (laughs) it worked out Hmm. like the hard part was not finding stuff the hard part was finding hours in the day right There were a couple of things that were, I think, like, the most challenging things were, uh, what is it, Um, custom comics, like, Mm -hmm. things that were printed for particular newspapers, or, like, there's there's an Iron Man comic from 2006 for DJI, the drone company, Mm -hmm. and that appears just about the same time the drones start showing up as weapons in Iron Man comics, and this Mm -hmm. is an Iron Man comic to advertise the kind of drone that you can fly in your backyard. Mm-hmm. And stuff like that's amazing. It's amazing. So, track those down. Did it. Proud of myself. So, Good job, Douglas. So pro, so promo comics as well. I guess you know is yeah, what you're exactly. saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, did you have a particular goal in mind as far as trying to discover if there is true continuity throughout the last sixty plus years, or? Um, Somebody gets a no prize. It's fine. I mean, there there are glitches. Yeah. There are always glitches. Yeah. The glitches are small. They're mm-hmm. so small in the overall picture of things. Yeah. And there are people who are willing to do the amazing Talmudic reasoning it takes to get around those glitches. I love the Marvel Chronology Project. Mm-hmm. I've actually done, done some stuff to, contributing to them. Because they are so attentive to, like, okay, here is how we can read this line of dialogue in a non-intuitive way that nonetheless makes this work. Oh, we're going to have to open up a space in the middle of this issue of X-Men for 350 other comics to happen in there. Hmm. Scene shift. Um, There's one that I think I might even mention the book that is my absolute favorite continuity hack ever, uh, which is in X-Men 101. Mm-hmm. You know, Phoenix makes her first appearance. She's in the shuttle. It plunges into Jamaica Bay. She reappears as Phoenix. She collapses. She gets rushed to the hospital. In the meantime, over in Marvel Team Up, there's a Marvel Team Up animal. Animal. There's a Marvel Team Up annual with Spider-Man, and the X-Men, with Phoenix having adventures in the Southwest, and Professor X is still having his precognitive nightmares. The problem is that by the time Jean Grey is out of the hospital in Uncanny X-Men, there is absolutely no space where that story can happen. <laughs> because you know, like that plot, the plot with Xavier's nightmares gets resolved. Like, there's no time it can happen. So somebody figured, oh, when Jean gets rushed to the hospital, there has to be a secret scene break between pages of that scene during which Jean gets better Goes off, has adventures in the Southwest with, you know, Spider-Man and the Hulk and all that. <laughs> and then some, for some reason, like, has to go back to the hospital, and then we pick it up again on page you know, seven or whatever. When that original uh, Marvel Team-Up story was reprinted and the Hulk story that follows it was reprinted, 
in Marvel Tales, like 15, 16 years later, that original story had been 17 pages, so there's a new five-page backup story set immediately after their appearance in that story in which they're attacked by a bunch of no-name villains who'd been West Coast Avengers, and, oh no, Jean's been injured and we have to rush her back to the hospital. There you go. Canon. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, the inevitable thing is, so since you've read um, comics from... Uh, this lengthy period of time uh you know there are people that say oh only uh marvel comics that came out in the 60s and early 70s are where it's at or others will say only ones that came out in the 80s and early 90s where it's at is there a better or worse period or is writing for marvel comics pretty fairly consistent over the last 60 plus years man the late 2020s are the best the best Uh, like 2020 (laughs) yes yeah the ones that haven't been written yet um it's so different all the time Mm -hmm. and i love just about every period for really different reasons like you know the 60s stuff it's just non-stop exploding ideas and it's like it's five people like marvel was tiny then right right Mm -hmm. but five unbelievably creative people all this originality. The, the 70s, there's this incredible psychedelic experimentation going on. <laughs> Nobody's done anything as crazy as that. The 80s, there's this fantastic artistic renaissance. There are incredible stylists who are like stamping their identity on things. Mm-hmm. The 90s, we don't really talk about. Uh, the, <laughs> uh, no, in the, like Even in the late 90s, there's that Marvel Knights moment where like, Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiati come in and hire really interesting, non-intuitive people to take over a bunch of titles that have either never really had much of a following or kind of fallen on hard times and do just outstanding original things with them. Yeah. You know, the 2000s, you've got Bendis and Mark Miller and remarkable writers doing things to just bring the entire line together and elevate the idea of the crossover into this stuff that nobody's ever done before. The, the, these brilliant hub and spoke things where you see the central event and then you see it rippling out separately into everything in the line. Mm-hmm. The 2010s, you've, you know, there's like the whole Jonathan Hickman secret wars, uh, new Avengers, new Avengers, secret war sequence alone. Like that's, that's has a you know the 2010s are pretty great on that basis alone mm-hmm. like there's always something amazing going on it's always a different thing not everything is ever good not mm-hmm. everything is ever good, but there's always something kind of great mm-hmm. and at every turn it is always like the thing that keeps me interested in it it is always very much about that moment. Even bad comics from any given moment are so totally of that moment. Somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, like, did you actually read every issue of NFL Super Pro? I was like, yes, I read every issue of NFL Super Pro. And as a matter of fact, in one of the last issues of NFL Super Pro, there's a parody of the mythopoetic men's movement of the early 90s. And you're just not going to find something like that in the good comic. <laughs> now, um, obviously, Marvel Universe continues today so <clears throat> excuse me um so when was your cutoff you know when you decided to make this book and you said right. all right 2020 or whatever is it you know I so my, my, my technical cutoff was actually the end of 2017 okay. uh, marvel legacy number one because that like that's a nice kind of rounding it out okay the Re- the richards family is back we're we're retrenching we are having a sort of moment of like take a deep breath and plunge back in at this point but I actually I kept I kept reading after that, and <laughs> there's there's some stuff like there's some stuff that deals with like House of X powers of ten in there, and that's like my favorite comic of the last few years. Mm-hmm. It's so good I could not ignore that. If I had had another six months, the X Men chapter would probably have been really different and probably more weighted toward like the post Hoxpox stuff because it's I I love those comics. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a chance of, say, a later expanded version, a revised version, or anything, or are you 
pretty much I'm done. This is the final book, and that's it. I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm real happy with the book as it is. Yeah. I wrote about twice as much as there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's some stuff that got cut that I'm kind of repurposing as little chapbooks for one thing or another. Uh, people who pre-ordered it from Books with Pictures got a little chapbook that I really enjoyed writing that just did not belong in the book. Mm. Uh, that was a, it, It's a completely fictional history of Marvel in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. uh, based on the idea that, like, okay, what if the actual commercial and artistic breakthrough had been Linda Carter's student nurse? Mm-hmm. What if they just poured all their enemy, poured all their like creative energy into comics about young professional women? Mm-hmm. What would that have looked like? And you know, uh, Amazing Adult Fantasy changes its name to Amazing Adults, and uh, you know, <laughs> um, Betty of the Bugle runs for hundred issues. Yeah, that, that's that kind of thing. Um, didn't really belong in the book, but I liked it too much to throw it out altogether. And, and so there's stuff like that. I don't, I don't know if I want to keep doing more of this immediately. Like people are like, yeah. you going to do DC next? Like, no, I'm not going to do DC <laughs> next. Um, I have a feeling the next book I write is either going to have almost nothing to do with comics or nothing at all to do with comics. <laughs> uh, or it might be comics. I might actually write some comics, which would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, before we move on to some of those other books, because I would like to ask you a little bit about those. Um, Series like What If, I know it was mentioned in the book, but I don't know how you incorporate it in there. Obviously, they're supposed to be fictional tales of what might have happened, but there is elements of what did happen in it, you know. Uh, so how do you also, incorporate things like that? What ifs and, you know, fantasy stories or made-up stories or ones that were considered not canon later on or something to that effect? To quote Alan Moore, this is an imaginary story, aren't they all? Yes. Uh, I mean, what if is technically a is technically within the bounds of my project because it's got the watcher narrating it from the Marvel Universe's Marvel Universe's home dimension, right? True. I read all that stuff. Sure. Uh, I didn't write about every series I read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't write about it. I read every issue of Maverick. I could not tell you what happens in a single issue of Maverick, but I read them all. <laughs> uh, read all of Mutant X. Then mm-hmm. not really a place to talk about the 75 issues of Mutant X that there were. There were 75 issues of Mutant X. Mm. Who knew? Um, <laughs> what if gets touched on? Yeah. Uh, there is actually a particular what if story and its sequel that figure very heavily into a chapter near the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is it is the the Pawns of Korvac story and the the one where the universe gets destroyed at the end and its sequel. There is a sequel to the one where the universe gets destroyed at the end because comics. Hmm. Now, um, of course, people ask the inevitable question. I was trying not to, but since you did bring it up, and uh, it's like so is the next project DC. Um, my question about DC would be, since DC never really was all that interested in continuity in the early days, seemingly, and then later when they did, that's when they created all those multiple Earths and everything, and then Crisis mm-hmm. fixed that supposed problem. Um, is DC worth tackling, even if you don't do a book on it, in the same way, or is it just a big monumental all over the place because you got even in Superman just using that you know you got crazy Lois Lane stories crazy uh, you know um, uh, you know Jimmy Olsen stories that's what I was trying to think of and things like that so I mean so I I was a DC kid to start out with okay (laughs) Uh, but I my basic answer to all like Marvel versus DC questions at this point is I like both kinds of music, country and Western. (laughs) Okay. The functional difference for my purposes is that Marvel has never reset their clock. They have never rebooted. They have never said, okay, we're throwing out everything before this point. DC has a couple times. Yeah. There are boxes and boxes and boxes of DC stuff. I love with every fiber of my being, but because it has done that reset, it doesn't have that historical weight of decades and decades and decades 
that Marvel okay. does. That is the thing that about really that interested me about this yeah. as a single fictional story. I mean, if I had to pick one giant multi-decade comics narrative that is my absolute favorite, it would be Judge Dredd, hmm. which is amazing. And nobody <laughs> in America reads it, but it's right. <laughs> and it's stayed great for 45 years. Mm-hmm. And it takes place in real time. So all the characters are 45 years older now than they were when it started. Hmm. And it's like 60% of it has been written or co-written by one guy Hmm. who is really playing the long game. Like it's wonderful, but you can't really do a book on that here. Yeah. Also, there's somebody who's writing an incredible book on Judge Dredd right now that's going to be out in like a year. So. But, you know, you did your own Judge Dredd series, you said. So, I mean, how did yeah. that come about since we're talking Judge Dredd? <laughs> uh, that was fun. Uh, so, at some point in the early 2000s, I finally, like, no longer had a comic store that would sell me new issues of 2080 every week. And a few years later, they started doing the complete case files, like the, the Judge Dredd collections of everything. And, and I mm-hmm. thought, like, huh, maybe I'll go back to this and, like, see how well it's held up. And I started reading and go, and it was like, not only has this held up, it's better than I remember it being. That's weird. <laughs> That's cool. And around that time, John Wagner, who's that writer I was talking about, who has been there since the get-go, was starting a year-long, like, you know, 50-part story called Day of Chaos, mm-hmm. which was paying off stuff he had set up 25 years earlier. <laughs> and it's amazing. And I was following it and I thought, you know what? I'm going to, I need a writing project that is just mine, just for fun. I'm going to start a blog. And so I started a blog where I was going through and writing about every collection of Judge Dredd that was in print. There were a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. While I was doing that, IDW got the American rights to Dredd and an editor from them, uh, Chris Ryle, called me up and said, Hey, do you want to write a text piece for the back of our first issue? Sure. Do you want to write a text piece for the back of every issue? Yeah, I can do that. Would you ever want to pitch a miniseries? Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, it had not occurred to me before that. that. Yeah. So I started thinking about, like, okay, what it, Judge Dredd is traditionally, quotes, a story about American culture a really brutally satirical story about American culture by and for British people. Mm-hmm. What could I, as somebody who lives in the Pacific Northwest, do that would be true to the spirit of that? Mm-hmm. And the answer was, I could write about how much I hate L.A. <laughs> and L.A. exist ed in the Judge Dread world, Mega City 2. It is a giant, sprawling, like, big chunk of the West Coast city that was seen on panel for about five pages ever, and then ten years later was nuked to glass. <laughs> but the Judge Dredd series starts 20 years into Dredd's career. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, rewind the clock. Let's see what would happen if we just sent him to L.A. like five years before the beginning of the series. Hmm. And that was that story. And... Then uh, Chris paired me up with the artist Ulysses Farinas, who (laughs) drew, I guess, like an audition piece that absolutely nailed what I was thinking of to the point where that ended up being the cover of the first issue. Uh, And then it was just collaboration. It was amazing. It was so much fun. My favorite moment of the whole thing, um, while I was struggling through figuring out the plot for some later ones, uh, Ulysses texted me with like a character he'd just drawn. And he was like, <laughs> so I just drew this guy. I don't even know who this guy is, but can we put him into the story? I was like, I knew who that, I know who that guy is, and now I know how number four is going to work. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, like that was, that was the missing piece I needed to make that story work. And just so many moments like that. Was so much fun. So how many uh, stories or issues did you actually end up doing? It was a a five-issue miniseries. Five issues, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Um, any chance of doing another one, or are you working on another one? I mean, I I have no other present comic gigs other than, like, a little story I'm working on for an anthology um, Mm -hmm. that 
will probably be out sometime next year. But, you know, um, somebody wants to ask me about writing something, I would love to hear about it. Because, <laughs> I mean, going back to the Marvel thing, it seems like, hmm, some sort of uh, heavy-duty Marvel deep uh, deep continuity thing might be up yeah, your alley if you um, can figure out something. <laughs> deep continuity stories are... <laughs> Sometimes more fun to write than they are to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there is the the danger of getting lost in trying to connect all the dots, mm-hmm. and there are ways in which that kind of thing can be really fun. I didn't, have you read uh, any of that uh, Fantastic Four life story thing that Mark Russell's been writing? No, I have not. So this is so last year. Chip Starsky did and Mark Bagley did this thing. It was a Spider-Man life story whose premise was, imagine if Spider-Man had aged in real time, let's do a six-issue miniseries with, like, one issue for each decade of his career. Okay. Uh, Fantastic Four Life Story is Mark Russell uh, writing, basically, the, the same concept with the FF. Okay. And the first issue of it is conceiving of the beginning of Fantastic Four as a story as if you know everything that's coming forward and are dramatically setting it up from the beginning which is great. Like you've got the scientist from this man, this monster as a peer of Reed Richards at the beginning, you've got the plot with the rocket launch and that turns into a plot involving like that scientist dragging Reed into the negative zone, which shows up right there at the beginning and Reed having a vision of Galactus coming for the world at some point in the future. Hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. That's you know, what you would do if you could go back and revise. Right. Because these kind of like people are like, is is this a giant novel? No, it's not a novel because the thing with the novel is once you draft it, you go back and revise it. You make it all work together. With comics, like after an episode is out in the world, it's out in the world. You can't take it back. You can't change it. So it's just an improvisation. Like every issue has to be connected to the previous one, but you can't go back and change what's already there. And this is kind kind of doing that. Which I thought was cool. It's <laughs> very cool. <laughs> um, let me see here. Uh, I got a couple of questions here. Is like, do, 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 do. and so um, just shifting gears a bit, and I will do that on this show because it's my show. Um, so <laughs> tell me a little bit about uh, just uh, the various uh, publications you've written for. So I, uh, in reading your background, you've written for New York Times, mm-hmm. Rolling Stone the nation the new republic what type of uh articles have you written for them and i mean all years? kinds of things i was the pop music critic for time magazine for a couple of years okay. uh i was the main graphic novel reviewer for the new york times book review for a few years mm-hmm. uh, i've you know written pieces about technology for wired and for spin magazine uh, done a lot of record reviews, a lot of stuff like that for you know Rolling Stone spin stuff. I was the when I was getting into uh, the editing business, I was the uh, managing editor of CMJ New Music Monthly music magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked at Blender for a while, mm-hmm. uh, the the music magazine. I've just all kinds of stuff all over the place. A lot of alt weeklies in the nineties. Uh, a lot of alt weeklies that have since gone under, unfortunately. Um, I used to do a lot of like live reviews and live previews for the Village Voice and the uh, Chicago Reader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just kind of all over the place. I'd uh, done some NPR things. Uh, there are a number of obituaries of well-known rock stars that have not run yet because bless those rock stars, they are still alive and kicking. I hope that those don't run for a real long time. But, but that eventually, was your assignment you know, to do... Rolling you know, Stones got on fire. Yeah, there's... Advanced obituaries, as it were. Yeah, yeah. for lack of a better term. Uh, <laughs> the, the one uh, I did for NPR, an obituary of uh, George Martin, the Beatles mm. producer. And I recorded that something like four years before he died. And so, you know, the morning he died, they ran this elaborate, like, you know, four or five minute obit with all sorts of sound clips and, and everyone's like how did you put that together so quickly it was like i did it <laughs> like uh, you know, uh ozymandias i did it uh, 35 months ago you know? yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been asked to do things like that before myself, but not as a regular gig. So I, I totally get what you're talking about. You know, the, the one obituary that actually really took me by surprise, uh, Tom Spurgeon. Hmm. Did you ever read the comics reporter? Yes. Yeah. I, I know uh, I met Tom at least once or twice. Yeah. Spurgeon, Spurgeon was amazing. And Spurgeon wrote to me at one point, like six or seven years ago and was like, Hey Douglas, in the unlikely event that I die before the comics reporter ends, I would like an obituary by you to be the last thing that runs on the site. Wow. And (laughs) I was like, that's a real honor, Tom, but like (laughs) hang in there. Okay. But but will you do it? Like, yeah, sure. Of course, of course I'll do it. And then uh, when I was I was in New York to try to finish up one of the last chapters of this book, and I got an email from his business partner saying, like, hey, guess what? Tom died. You're on. Wow. <laughs> um, and that was really, really hard to do. And I'm really happy with how it turned out. It's a terrifying honor to have, like, that be the thing that people see when they go to that site. Yeah. Tom was amazing, but yeah. yeah. So that, that was the thing. Interesting. <laughs> now, um, as far as taste in music, uh, do you, uh, run the gamut or are you mainly just rock and roll? What, what are your, you know, I told you I like both kinds of music, country and Western. Uh, no, I, so I actually have been running a tiny record label for about 30 years. Hmm. Um, it is very tiny. Uh, it is called dark beloved cloud. Oh. I started it in 1992. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing I put out was a split single with Sebado and Azalea Snail. Like I was deep in the New York indie rock world at that point. Mm-hmm. And I put out you know, experimental records by you know this British saxophonist, Caroline Crabble, and her uh, uh, the mass producers who were her group, who were 30 women saxophonists who would like surround their audience in a ring. Um, <laughs> And I put out stuff by New Zealand pop musicians. There's a, a singer-songwriter named Chris Knox, who is kind of, a, I've, I've heard him described as New Zealand's equivalent of if Iggy Pop, Joan Jett, and Robin Hitchcock were all the same person. <laughs> uh, and great. And I, I put out uh, one of his records. Um, and like American bands, uh, the record that did best for me is probably by this English and French new wave band called Family Fodder, hmm. who I had picked up a single by them just out of a, uh, like a bargain bin, some record store, and it, because I like the sleeve, and I took it home, and I was like, this is the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and I you know, saw that a bunch of other records by them, and they were, number one, all great, and number two, sounded like they were band, not only not by the same band, but by bands who'd never heard each other. Mm. And I was like, who are these people? <laughs> and I tracked down a little more information about them. Finally found somebody who had been kind of a band that was adjacent to them who said like, oh, uh, Alec. Alec was the main guy in that band. Uh, he was great, but uh, these days he lives in Morocco and he just goes swimming all day. And he needs when he needs money for pasta, he goes and plays accordion in the town square. <laughs> uh, and so I tracked Alec down and... Alec uh, said, like, oh, I, I would love to reissue some of that stuff, but uh, the rights are owned by this guy in England who's just going to charge you through the nose for them. <laughs> and so I wrote to that guy in England, and he was like, oh, my God, Family Father were my, were my absolute favorite band, and I'll do anything it takes to help you put out the right. So, okay. Wow. <laughs> um, and so eventually it came together, and I got to put out, like, a Greatest Hits album. And then uh, the week it came out, their singer, Dominique, who was, you know, this – 55-year-old French lady and called me. Hello, Douglas, this is Dominique from Family Fodder. I'm going to be coming over and staying with you for the next month. It's okay? You'll come and be, meet me at the airport, no? <laughs> I don't even know what you look like, Dominique. Oh, you've seen pictures of me, no? I've seen pictures of you from 1979. Well, I look exactly like that now. Um, right. <laughs> but she was great. And then, like, yeah, perfect house guest. And then two months later, I got a call from Alec, like, so, you know, to celebrate the new album, the, the greatest hits coming out, um, we got the band back together to hang out at uh, Dominique's place in the south of France, and we ended up, like, writing a new album. Um, and they've been together in one form or other ever since, so. Oh, wow. yeah. Hey. 
kudos to you for getting a group to reunite. So. <laughs> and, uh, l- long-winded story, but yes, all my stories are long-winded. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. You know, we're just going over your career and different things. One thing, you know, the thing is, I don't know you by name per se, but I'm sure I've read different things. Like one thing that you wrote, I'm sure I've read because uh, you wrote about the James Brown album Live at the Apollo, oh, yeah. and one of those 33 and a third books. And I used to voraciously read all those books. So <laughs> I know I read that one. And I've gone through, it, it, I'll, I'll preface by saying I'm actually not a live music fan meaning live album fan i prefer studio albums but when there is a good live album uh live at the apollo is not my favorite uh live at leeds is number one but this is like two or three and it's like it was i just discovered it from the standpoint of uh there's a radio station in san francisco called kfog and they used to play that introduction where the 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 guy would say all the titles of James Brown's song, and you know, the like in greater momentum, you know, bewildered, you know, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. you know, yeah. and then this song, duh, you know, yeah. <laughs> and then you know, just to build up the audience, and the audience goes nuts when yeah. James Brown finally comes out. So yeah. I said, that's a good album. I like that one. So yeah. you know, I know I read that book. So why that album? Why did you get? How did you get that book? And is that your favorite album or? What? <laughs> it's not even my favorite James Brown live album. Uh, <laughs> like my favorite James Brown live album is probably Revolution of the Mind, which is uh, from 72. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made a lot of live albums, like a lot of them, a lot of records. That happened because I got a call from uh, the editor who started the 33 and third series. Mm-hmm. And he said like, do you want to do an album for this? I was like, great. I will pick one of my favorite albums. And I think my first choice was the album Wanna Buy a Bridge. Is this a familiar title to you? That's fine. It's not familiar. So Wanna Buy a Bridge was the sampler of the U.S. branch of the British label Rough Trade Records that they released when Rough Trade, like, opened an American branch in 1980 or 81. Mm-hmm. And this is—it's an album that has a little bit of a cult around it, but it literally is a label sampler, and like mm-hmm. was in print for six months and then gone. Mm-hmm. And my editor was like, "Would you perhaps care to try an album that anybody has ever heard of?" <laughs> that also nicks my second choice, which would have been "The Land of Thirst" by World of Pooh. I've heard of that one, actually. I've not heard it, but I've it's heard of it. <laughs> great record. It is Barbara Manning and Brendan Kearney's band from the late 80s. Um, just this fantastically tense, bitter pop album. But like, <laughs> it was it was only ever an LP. There were only ever a thousand copies of it. Like, oh, come on, Douglas. And it was like, okay. I know a lot about James Brown. I had done like an 18-hour James Brown radio special in college. Uh, I'm huge, huge, huge fan. Live at the Apollo. Great. Live at the Apollo. So the interesting thing about Live at the Apollo is that it was recorded in Harlem during the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. At a point when pretty much everybody in that audience thought there was a pretty good chance they were going to be dead inside the week. And so I got to tell the story of that night, that show, that performance, that historical moment, and all the musical history that leads into that moment, all the musical history that comes out of that moment. And it was really fun. And that was the first book I got to write, a little book, teeny yes, little book. Yeah, yeah. Those books, those books are like 30,000 words. Right, right. Yeah. And, uh, well, that explains that. That's kind of an interesting story of how you got about it. You know, well, did you even pitch the other live album that you prefer or did they say nah, not nah, I, I was like okay you know what let's do something that's actually commercially viable okay um there are you know, I mean, there are things that would be fun to write about but are really hard sell yeah and one thing about like writing all the marvels is that that's a nice simple concept that is a fun concept that people understand and it's a gimmick right it is Evil Knievel jumping over 60 cars. It is Stephen Merritt writing 69 love songs. Right. But it works, and it had you know, conceptual integrity. It was a springboard for all kinds of other stuff I could talk about. And it was like, okay, 
Try that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, and you already mentioned that she won an Eisner for it. I was going to mention it. There's uh, reading comics and how, what is it? Oh, graphic how novels graphic work. novels work yeah. and what they mean. Yeah, <laughs> and I remember seeing that when it came out, but I didn't yeah. connect the dots until yeah. now. Reading this, I go, "Oh yeah, I read that book." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it actually came out almost simultaneously with a book that Dennis Kitchen put together that was also called Reading Comics. That was a postcard book of pic- like antique pictures of people reading comics, and so uh, like the the. Dennis Kitchen and I have had like a, a, a fake a fake feud since then. I adore <laughs> him. He's brilliant. But yeah. Um, that one actually was suggested by my agent. And my agent is somebody that I knew through music criticism circles. Uh, hmm. There used to be an annual convention of music writers. Uh, the Experience Music Project in Seattle hosted is the EMP annual pop conference. And for years and years, every year I would give there, I would go to the conference and I would give a talk. And I met my agent there and she read a bunch of stuff that I'd written. And she said like, okay, you write about music really well. You're the only person I know who's really writing about comics for a popular audience. To, and there were other people doing it, but I was getting bylines in a bunch of places. And she was like, would you want to do a book of that stuff? And it's a, it's a very thrown together book. Mm-hmm. It is just a bunch of essays. Mm-hmm. It is a bunch of essays that don't really connect. They don't really form a big argument or something. Some of them I'm real proud of. I am really, really, really proud of that service essay. Mm-hmm. I'm delighted with how that came out. And that was actually a, you know, a piece that I had written for the Believer magazine, yeah. which I love The Believer, and The Believer I just heard is folding, and I'm so sad about it. The Believer would let you write you know, 8,000 words on anything if it was something that you were passionate about and that like you could turn out an interesting piece about. Um, Stephanie Burt has written a lot of stuff for them, and Stephanie is one of my closest friends. Uh, she was one of the beta readers for all of the Marvels. She just published an amazing book of poems that are almost all about the X-Men, Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that that was that the believers her stomping ground too. But yeah, uh, reading comics was just like okay. So there's some essays that I published various places and have the rights to. And what are some other things that are kind of across the spectrum of comics available in English right now? Um, what would be not the canon quotes as we think about it, but my canon, the stuff I like. Mm-hmm. And I think it really succeeded as that. Um, well, it struck me as just kind of, um, well, I'll put it this way. It's not too dissimilar to All in Color for a Dime, you know, because that yeah. is a bunch of essays. And it yeah. wasn't originally planned to be a book either. Right. And it ended up being a book. And now it's considered a, a classic in comic book history or crit- criticism, for lack of a better term, yeah. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um I always kind of saw your book as kind of an updating of that, you know, because graphic novels weren't in existence back then. So, you know, I mean, yeah, that's a nice way of thinking of it. I like that. So, um, which is why, you know, and I, I bet I wrote, uh, I, I voted for the Eisners for at least 10 years and I probably voted for your book. So there you go. I I can't remember. It's like, I'd have to see who was, you were competing against. (laughs) Oh yeah, I pro- but I probably did because I remember enjoying the book at the time. So that's how you go. I, I definitely gave the shortest Eisner acceptance speech of all time. That I didn't see. So what did you do? <laughs> I, I I was I had absolutely no idea that I was even in the running, <laughs> and uh, I went up there and uh, oh god, what what's her name from, from the Go Go's? Who's always oh Jane Weedland? Jane Weedland, yes. Yeah. Like Jane Weedlin, like you know, presents me with my word, like kisses me on the cheek, and I just went to the mic and went, "Thank you so much," and ran off stage. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know for sure if it was Jane, but I know Jane usually is hanging out at these conventions. She's a good friend Jane. of Bill Morrison and stuff yeah. like that. So I figured mm-hmm. probably her. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, um, let's see. Another thing that you do is, uh, or are you still doing this? Uh, you're a radio host. 
still. Is that correct? So I have been a radio host in the past. I, I hosted a show on WFMU for a while. Yeah. Um, I did radio in college. It has been a long time since I've done radio, although I do do a podcast now. So Okay, there we go. Uh, the, uh, so what's that? What's that uh, about? The podcast is The Voice of Latveria. Okay. It is nominally a Cold War era propaganda broadcast uh, from the state of Latveria, which uh, Dr. Doom runs. Uh, it is more actually me and a different guest every week talking about one of Dr. Doom's comics appearances, not in publication order, not in continuity order, but in the order that Doom himself experienced them, which is different from continuity order because he has a time machine. Uh, and uh, more genuinely than that, it is really just like me and a different guest talking about whatever they want to talk about. My favorite episode so far is one, my guest was Alex Ross, not the artist Alex Ross, oh. the classical music historian Alex Ross. Oh, okay. Uh, who had just published a book about Wagner. Mm -hmm. And so we had an issue of uh, the invaders where Dr. Doom appears for a couple pages and there's a scene where Hitler goes to see a Wagner opera performed. And I was like, okay, so tell me about the role of Wagner's music in Nazi Germany. And Alex talked about that for 45 minutes and it was amazing. Mm -hmm. So that was the episode. Yeah. <laughs> and then well, I know yeah, there's a strong connection there. I don't know. Yeah. I'll have to seek out your podcast to get all the nitty gritty details. And, so there. and, and at the beginning and end of each episode, there, there is like a, a newscast from like Latvian national radio, which is just, <laughs> uh, it is usually the events in the comics published the same month as whatever issue we're talking about seen from the perspective of how they would be reported on Latvian radio. Wow. So. <laughs> You take the podcast to a totally different level. <laughs> I'm like, it's I'm just fun. doing interviews here. It's folks. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, my, my other favorite one is I recently had Margaret Pride, who was a uh, U.S. diplomat in the Foreign Service for about 30 years, hmm. and specifically on the question of, like, what exactly can Dr. Doom get away with on the grounds of diplomatic immunity? What does diplomatic immunity mean? What does it entitle you to do? What is the worst thing that you can get away with and say, like, I have diplomatic immunity? The answer, by the way, is shoplifting. <laughs> uh, um, this just came into my head. I was just thinking about <laughs> yeah. continuity and everything, which obviously this is just out of left field, but it just yeah. made me think of on the Marvel book again. Mm -hmm. Um I assume you read, but how did you handle uh, books like Superman versus Spider-Man and uh, Batman versus the Hulk and X-Men? By reading you, them? Well, I mean, did you incorporate <laughs> them into the continuity of the book in any way? Yeah, I'm, or, uh, there is actually a little tiny bit about Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man in the Secret Wars chapter. Okay. Because the final issue of Secret Wars has a cover by Alex Ross, not the classical music historian, historian but the <laughs> oh, comics yeah. artist, okay. <laughs> uh, which uh, is, you know, Reed Richards and Doom kind of clashing against a background of fragments of images from the past of the Marvel story. Mm -hmm. And they are all images from old comics, and one of them is an image of Spider-Man from the cover of Superman vs. The Amazing Spider-Man. And just at the very far left border of the cover of Secret Wars number 9, you can see Superman's toe. <laughs> Can't have Marvel without DC. Exactly. <laughs> But also that's in the context of how that image and its equivalent on the inside of that issue echoes an image that's in the last issue of Secret Wars 2, which itself echoes an image that's in like an old issue of Giant Size Avengers. And there are just these visual resonances down the years. It's all, it's all together. Mm -hmm. So um, you kind of touched on this at the very beginning, but uh, I, I was just kind of wanting you to elaborate this because it's similar for me. Uh, you said that you didn't intend to ever become a writer initially. And I've written a few books myself, but I never thought I could be a writer either. But I realized in my case that I didn't like writing about things I didn't like writing about. In other words, book reports of books I didn't like reading, things like that. So I never considered myself a writer until I realized, oh, if I can write about something I actually like. So when did you discover that hey, not only do I like to write, but I'm a good writer. 
I mean, really, it was when I kind of fell into writing for like music magazines in the early 90s. Like, it had to be done, so I did it. And then people liked it. And people called me up and said, hey, will you write for us and we'll pay you? Hmm. Like, okay. Uh, and I got more and more interested in the craft of it and in thinking about, like, okay, who is reading this? How can I make this a gift for them? Something that is fun for them to read, whether or not they're interested in the thing I'm writing about. Yeah, That's real important to me. Um, me too. One of my absolute favorite books of criticism is a book by Luca Turin and Tanya Sanchez. It is called Perfumes, the A to Z Guide. Hmm. I know nothing about perfume. I do not really care about perfume. But Turin and Sanchez write so beautifully and amusingly and vividly about perfume that I just devoured every page of that thing and went back over and over to it, just looking at how their language worked. Mm-hmm. So that, that was, that was kind of a mind blower to see that and to think, okay, like that's, that's kind of a guide for stepping my game up. Yeah. And again, it's kind of like uh, the uh, magazine where, you know, you can write 8,000 words as long as you're passionate about it. So it sounds like they're passionate about perfume. <laughs> uh, you might not be, but the, the passion comes across on the word, on the printed word. Yeah. You can be passionate at least long enough. I've seen books like that too. You know, you read it, it's like, I'm not even interested in this, but yeah, it's written so well. Yeah. It's made me at least a peripheral fan about it, <laughs> you know, right. long enough to understand it and go, oh, okay, all right, very good. <laughs> so, um, Let's see. I don't really have any other questions. What 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 uh, projects are you working on next? I mean, you touched on a little bit, but uh, is there anything definite? You said maybe not a comic book related thing. Maybe, but there's there is nothing definite right now. Like I'm I'm teaching comics history at Portland State this term, uh, which is super fun, and I've done it a few times, and I might I might do some more teaching. I'm as soon as the term is over, I'm going to try to tour with this book until the wheels fall off, but I don't have anything booked at the moment. Uh, but you know, as, as I am talking to you, I just did two weeks of traveling around California and giving talks and singing the book's theme song. The book has a theme song. Um, <laughs> and you know, giving lectures. Uh, I'd like to do more of that. Um, <laughs> I would like to do more creative stuff. I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. At the moment, it's just the promotional cycle. Yeah. And that's fine, you know, um, because, I mean, hopefully, uh, crossing fingers, uh, 2022 will start opening up. I mean, it's opened up a little bit, you know, that be nice. I'm sure you'll make the rounds to, like, say, San Diego and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, and uh, I, I I got to do some things at some really fun places. I went to the Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival, which is put together by uh, the library there and gave a talk there. I gave a talk in an art gallery in Santa Monica mm. uh, in the backyard of a venture capitalist in San Francisco, <laughs> like just these unlikely places, but they all turned out to be like really fun places to talk and really congenial and people are full of questions. And I love when people are full of questions that I can answer. <laughs> and um, you have turned around uh, Oregon because I mean, where I picked this up, Unfortunately, it's a comic book store that I can't, the bookmark's up there, but it's in Eugene. And, uh, oh, at the, Books and Pictures Eugene. Books yeah. and Pictures, there we go. Yeah. And uh, I had never been there before, and I just went in there, and like I said, it said, signed by author, and I said, well, I was planning to buy this anyway, so it's like, uh, you said, I'll just show the autographs. It's very <laughs> And uh, Andrea, who runs that place, is amazing. Like She's, yeah. she's like everyone who works there. Like, fantastic they are the eugene branch of my favorite store in portland okay so that is the same you know chain as it were if there's basically two <laughs> okay because i've never been to the one in portland uh, the only ones i've been up in the, uh, your area uh cloud nine and um uh cosmic monkey, monkey? In the, monkey yes cosmic monkey yeah cosmic i monkey, love that place yeah, yeah. And in fact, I was uh, praising them years ago. It was about 10 years ago. Uh, they had one of my books in there 
story. Nice. So I was like, wow, you know, <laughs> which was the best of Harveyville fun times, which was my very first book. And I was like, totally impressed that a place I was still living in California at the time. And so I was like, Oh, thanks guys. You have one of my books. All right, cool. <laughs> so anyway, but uh, yeah, I haven't been to too many other Portland uh, stores other than maybe if they had a booth at a convention or something, I think I went to wizard world a few years back. Floating like world. If you can get to them downtown, they're a great store. They are much more heavily focused on imported stuff and art comics, but they have stuff that like I've never seen any place else. That's cool. Because, like, I hate to say, um, you know, most of the stores here in Eugene, Springfield area are kind of, you know, hate to say, you know, not big on the selection. I'm used to California stores where they're like, you know, big mega supermarkets of stuff, you know. But anyway, Um, but, you know, I can always order things online. I know everything like that. But there's something about, going through a box a good or... comic store like there's nothing better nothing yeah. better yeah and so i still like to support stores even you know to this day you know i'd rather like you know your book here i'd rather buy it in a store than order it online unless i was ordering it directly from you then i do stuff like yeah, that but, but i mean yeah. there, there's something neat about mm-hmm. oh there's that book i'll buy mm-hmm. it you know mm-hmm. it's like rather than yeah i could buy it on the amazon but it's always there <laughs> so anyway um Apart from that, how do, how do people get in contact with you if they would want to ask you a question? Or uh... um, DouglasWolk.com has a contact form. Uh, you can hit me up at Twitter. I'm Douglas Wolk. Uh, or you can write to Faithful Retainer Boris at Voice of Latveria. All right. And uh, website, I think you do have one. Yeah, DouglasWolk.com. Very simple. <laughs> okay. Real simple. Yeah. All right. And... Um... You know, it was a pleasure having you on the show today. I just wanted to talk to you about uh, all your different projects and everything like that. I thought that the Marvel book was a very great idea, and I definitely will read it more in depth now that we've discussed it. But no, thank you so much, Mark. This is a blast. Thank you. And uh, if there's nothing else, uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show, and uh, we'll join everyone next time on another fun ideas podcast thank you for listening and thank you douglas wolk for being my special guest remember you can always watch the video version of this episode on youtube episode number 141 will be coming soon if you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com become a patron of mark arnold and fun ideas productions If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Danny Salazi of the characters and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2021 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. Just